You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Evil minds that plot destruction. Sorcerer of death construction. In the fields of bodies burning. Machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week Broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite Listen to the Anarchist World This Week Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse Listen to analysis of local, national and international events analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. And if I defame you, like Christian Porter thinks the ABC has defamed him, you can always sue me and we'll go 50-50 on the proceeds. If you wonder what anarchy is all about, anarchos without rulers. It's about creating a society without rulers. What gives rulers the ability to determine the lives of hundreds of millions and billions of people? Very simple, inequalities in power and wealth. So the anarchist struggle is the struggle to devolve power. That's a fancy word for sharing power, uh, possibly through direct democratic mechanism and a struggle to hold wealth in common and use it for the common good. Simple concepts, important concepts as we uh, travel through the 21st century, faced with the problems of increasing CO2 emissions, finite resources, increasing population growth, it's important that we look of institutional change, not just in terms of uh, personal issues, but in terms of uh, national and international issues. This is the Anarchist World This Week. My name's Joseph Toscano. Okay, let's move on. Now, obviously, the major issue of the week in Australia has been the March for Justice and the what I would describe more as a day of rage about the inadequacies or the poor response, not by just the government but by individuals around this country, regarding uh, violence and women. I think when people realise the same crap they put up with in society was being replicated in Parliament House, you know, from uh, alleged rape to uh, constant harassment that people, women especially, felt this was an affront, a total affront. Because what's the, what is the purpose of government? What is the purpose of government? The purpose of government is to provide security, not just security regarding national borders and, and, uh, far, and, and overseas attack. I mean, we spend billions of dollars. We have an armed forces. We have border force to protect us and provide security. But if a government can't provide security to its citizens and its residents, then we have a real issue. And this issue is an issue about providing personal security. Now, 
individual attitudes change, and my attitudes to various causes and various things over the years has changed. And individual change is possible. We can change attitudes. But cultural change needs institutional change, and that's what people forget. It's all very well talking about cultural change, tied in with education regarding consent. But although individual change is possible, cultural change, as far as society-wide is concerned, needs institutional change. And this struggle for safety and security is really a struggle for institutional change which goes beyond the current issues. Because there are many people in our society who find themselves dealing with violence and harassment on a daily basis. Because ultimately, we live in a violent society. And the reason we live in a violent society is because this society is based on inequalities. And in order for these inequalities to exist, inequalities in power, inequalities in the economy inequalities in opportunity, in order for these inequalities to exist, we need an apparatus which has a monopoly on the use of force. And the state in this country enjoys a monopoly on the use of force. And that monopoly is a three-legged beast. It includes the legal system, it includes state police forces, and it includes uh, federal police forces and the armed services, Navy, Army, and uh, Air Force. So the state has a monopoly on the use of force in this country, and we've seen the use of that monopoly in order to protect people during the COVID-19 crisis over the last uh, 15 months. So if the state has a monopoly on the use of force, then you would think that the state would be able to protect its citizens. But unfortunately, this monopoly on the use of force is basically there to protect those who exercise power in our society, those who own the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication the major institutions in our country, that monopoly on the use of force and that legal apparatus is used to protect their interests. And when it comes to the protection of the individual from the arbitrary exercise of state power or the protection of the individual from the people around them, we find the state has very little interest in that protection. It does use the breakout of violence in various ethnic communities or various communities in our society has a reason to reinforce their existence. So what are practical steps we can use to create a climate for cultural change which is based on institutional change? Because we are a violent society and that's the fact We are a violent society. And the state isn't there, as we think it is, to protect ourselves from each other. But the state is basically there to protect those who continue to exercise power. 
So what are steps which can be introduced tomorrow to address the issue of violence against women, the issue of violence against minorities? The first one is a universal basic income. We live in a capitalist society, a society based on the concept of private investment for private profit. And over the last 40 years, we have seen that statement, private investment for private profit, raised almost a religious mantra. Unfortunately, in 21st century Australia, the ability of people to enjoy a reasonable standard of living and to have independence, and that's the key, financial independence, is based on a wage system, is based on the idea of being able to earn money within a capitalist economic framework. So economic dependency in the community is a break on people, women especially, taking the steps to leave difficult and violent relationships. If you have no economic independence, the ability to break away from such a toxic relationship is exceptionally difficult. So a universal basic income would provide the mechanism via which people could experience economic independence and gives them the ability to walk away from difficult and toxic and violent relationships. So I think the struggle for a universal basic income is not just a struggle to ensure that everybody in society has a decent standard of living, but it's also the struggle to ensure that people who are not in the wage system or are in the wage system part-time, people who are economically dependent, in the majority of cases it's women, have the economic ability to walk away. Currently, in federal parliament, there is legislation to allow women in violent relationships who walk away to access $10,000 of their own superannuation money. I mean, that's not adequate. It's ridiculous. I think the next thing we need to do, and I think the Victorian uh, Royal Commission into Mental Health Services was a great eye-opener for a lot of people, not for me, because I've been involved in the, these issues for decades, but for a lot of people. We had a system which is totally catastro catastrophically dysfunctional. Now, not everybody is born equally. Not everybody has the same experiences. Not everybody has the same genetic makeup. There are people in our community who battle with the demons of mental illness on a daily basis. Not just anxiety and depression, suicidal ideation, but hallucinations, auditory, visual hallucinations, paranoia. Some of these symptoms are directly 
attributable to the type of childhood they have. Many are attributable to genetic predispositions. Now, in many of the cases that I've looked at, where violence has led to murder, there have been significant mental health issues. So if we want to decrease violence against women and violence in the community, then we need to invest as a society in our mental health services. It's not adequate having an ambulance type approach where somebody has a major breakdown and causes irreparable harm to the people around them and then they're taken away or put in prison or put in a facility. It's too late then. The damage has been done. And if you don't have a mental health system that is adequately resourced to deal with people who find themselves in this situation, and I'm talking about one in four people during our lifetime, then you will continue to have violence. Violence does not have to be rational. Many murders and assaults are conducted because of irrational reasons, paranoia, morbid jealousy, hallucinations. So if you want to tackle the question of violence in our society, and especially the question of violence against women, something that needs to be done is an overhaul of the mental health services and the way they are structured and the way people can access them. It's all very well for somebody with resources to pay a dollar a minute, I think it's about a dollar twenty these days, to see a private psychiatrist. What happens to everybody else who relies on a system, not just in the whole, in the, around Australia, which is broken? It's all very well having you know a few you know a private organisation like Lifeline to uh, people talk to, but where are the government-owned organisations? Where are the public facilities? So, if you want to decrease violence in our community, another practical step is the overhaul, the total overhaul on mental health services, how they're structured, how people can access them, and removing the monetary concerns to access these services. It's all very well seeing a psychologist, psychiatrist, and having a disposable income to see them. It's another matter if you find yourself in a situation economically where you can't access these services. I think the next thing we need to look at in terms of decreasing violence in the community and creating the climate for cultural change, and as I said before, cultural change is about institutional change. Individual attitudes change. Culture does not change without institutional reforms. It's that simple. The next thing I think we should look at is to decriminalise drugs. I know it's unfashionable today to say that uh, violence against women is exacerbated by the use of alcohol and drugs, but I think every statistical analysis highlights that. It doesn't diminish the responsibility of the perpetrator 
But what happens when people are in the grips of an addiction? What happens is that you lose that ability to make rational decisions and the addiction overrides any or a lot of interpersonal issues. And if the drug you are drug of choice is an illegal drug, then you have the economic imperative to find the money to access that drug. So it's about time as a society, instead of having 70% of the prison population in there, mainly for victimless crimes, which involve drugs, that we have, firstly, we have the ability to change the focus on alcohol, which is a central focus in the way, as a society, we enjoy ourselves. And also we need to decriminalise drugs to remove the economic imperative, the economic push, and treat both of these issues as a medical issue. Now, I've been involved with people who've had alcohol abuse and drug abuse, and the ability to find them a place in a public health facility, and I'm talking about public health facility, not a private health facility which they pay for, or their private insurance pays part of it for, is almost non-existent. So what we have is a huge cohort of people in our society who are facing addiction, who are facing the problems which uh, revolve around addiction, which then these problems uh, break out into their own personal relationships, and we see the use of violence as part and parcel of that issue. So we need to be able to treat drug addiction and alcohol addiction as medical problems. And once again, like the mental health system, we need to be able as a society to use, to increase the amount of resources which are poured in that area. And... If I went out into the streets today and I bashed up a few people and I was sued by those people, which I can be, I would have to pay. The courts found in their favour, I would pay. I would have to pay or go bankrupt. Now, we have large corporations in this country that have legal uh, control of addictive substances like cigarettes and alcohol who don't pay for the damage they cause in the community. And this is something that we really need to look at very closely because if you want to decrease violence against women, you want to decrease violence in the community, we need to address that issue. The next thing that we can do practically is fund the divorce courts. Although we have a no-fault divorce system, when it comes to individuals coming to an arrangement 
we find that about 15 to 20% of people who separate find themselves in a divorce court merry-go-round which goes around and around and around and around and never ceases to stop. And many of the most brutal crimes against women which occur are those revolving separation. And what we've done over the last 20 years or 30 years is defund legal aid defund the ability of people to come to some type of agreement in the divorce courts, which are basically now an adversarial system which continues ad nauseum. So once again, we are looking at funding. Now, I know that attitudes don't change, but funding... But if you want to address the problem about violence in our community, and especially violence against women, we need to be able to decrease the amount of friction which occurs in a situation where a couple decides to separate. Whether it's a heterosexual couple or a uh, same-sex couple, it's the same issue. Now, the next thing that we should be looking at in our society, especially in Australia in the 21st century, is combating the commercial sexualisation of children and the commodification of women's bodies. In simple terms, what we should be doing, we should be combating as a society and as institutions and through laws, organisations and institutions which make the sexualisation of childhood a normal everyday occurrence in our society and which make the commodification of women's bodies a commercial entity. Because while these things continue to occur, attitudes, public attitudes regarding women and children, and they're the major people who suffer sexual abuse, the major pop, pop, portion of the population, over 95%, who suffer sexual abuse, to a significant degree it's compounded by commercial organisations exploiting children and women through advertising in order to sell products because this moulds attitudes in the community. And again, these are practical steps that can be taken to not ch just change personal attitudes or individual attitudes but for cultural change. Cultural transformation needs institutional change. And last but not least, let's not forget the sewer that the virtual world has become. And to a significant degree, the virtual world is a sewer because of the anonymity which is enjoyed by most people who use the virtual world. When I use the virtual world, people know who it is. So therefore I'm responsible 
for what appears on the uh, various platforms that I'm involved in. But the rise and rise and rise of platforms which are based on harassment, violence, sexual crimes in the virtual world is exploding. And this can have a major impact on children who are exploring their own sexuality as they grow older. So what is considered to be normal behaviour, which is violence, becomes inculcated in people's personalities. And when they go out into the real world, they may use the same tactics. And we've seen an increase in this. I think the best way to deal with this and those of you who use the dating site Tinder will understand the situation where you may find yourself the victim of a sexual predator who uses Tinder to exploit women and other people. The reality is anonymity allows these predators to continue to use virtual platforms to exploit people. So we need a mechanism by which the organisations which profit from these platforms, and these platforms are not there as social, uh, they're not there to help the community, they're there to make a profit. And if it helps the community, well, well and good. If it doesn't, bad luck. So they need to be policed in a way that removes predators from their site. So these are all practical issues. There's nothing... They don't need, they don't need revolution. Obviously, they've ne- needed thousands of women in the streets, thousands of women outside Parliament House. Say enough is enough. But, see, this government and other governments, what they tend to do is they weather... They weather the caravan news cycle. They batten down the hatches, put up the umbrellas. The raindrops fall around their feet. They jump over the puddle and they continue their business without changing anything. So if we want cultural change and we want to decrease, not eliminate, because you can't eliminate, but decrease the amount of violence in our community, and especially the amount of violence against uh, women in our community, then we need to look at these issues as far as I'm concerned. Universal basic income, overhaul the mental health services, decriminalise drug, expose the virtual anonymous trolls, fund divorce courts, combat sexualisation of children and commodification of women's bodies, and last but not least have a strong, viable public housing sector. Because if you're forced to leave your home because of a toxic relationship, the immediate problem you're faced with is, where will I go? And obviously there are privately run organisations, many not-for-profit, which provide emergency housing. 
but we need to have on tap public housing which people can access in this situation possibly on a temporary basis and if necessary on a long-term basis. Now, some of these suggestions, and these are suggestions, don't require funding, but most require funding. So how do we fund these? If you want to decrease violence against women, you want to decrease violence in the community, you want to ensure everybody has a reasonable life, how do we fund these proposals? And again, I'm not talking about violent revolution. I'm talking about simple reform. I shouldn't be talking about this stuff. Other people should be talking about this stuff. And it's quite extraordinary how few people are looking at these issues in a wider context like we do here on the Anarchist World this week. So how do you fund it? Well, one way of funding it is a 1% stock market transaction tax. Every time a stock or bond is bought or sold, 1% goes directly into the government's coffers. As the whole thing is now computerised, all it takes is a little piece of legislation. And if people who own stocks and shares jump up and down, well, bad luck. Bad luck. And if you're worried about your superannuation fund not getting that extra 1%, bad luck. Because what will happen is we'll be able to create a much more secure, safer community which will assist everybody, even those who own stocks and shares. So a 1% transaction tax on stocks and shares would raise anywhere between 60 to $120 billion. That's right, billion dollars per year. Almost 20% of our, no, about 15% of our current trillion dollar budget. The next tax, yes, tax, yes, T-A-X, I know they're not popular, tax, and would affect all of us, would be a 1% transaction tax. Now, you pay a goods and services tax on goods and services you access, 10%. But the financial sector does not pay goods and services tax. So every time, every time a dollar comes into a corporation or a business, and you can always make a cut-off point, so $2 million over a 12-month period, as the cut-off point where you don't pay the 1% transaction tax, you pay a 1% transaction tax. Again, this is a simple reform. Tick of the box. So you've got these large organisations like uh, Facebook and Google would actually pay some tax. Uber, pay some tax. And even our traditional mining sector, pay a little bit more tax. 1% transaction tax. Every time there's a financial transaction. Bang, 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 bang. And if your turnover is less than $2 million per year in your business, well, you get it back at tax time when you do your tax returns. This could raise up to 250 to 300 billion, that's right, dollars per year. And then last but not least, we should be looking at taking back our mineral resources. Australia is a mineral-rich country. We have given over 
these minerals to private corporations who pay peppercorn tax and minimal royalties. Everybody talks about the Norwegian wealth fund, their oil fund, with over a trillion billion a trillion dollars for uh, four million people in Norway, four point two million people. How do they get all that money? They ensure that the oil which is extracted from their seas, most of that profit came back to them. So you don't need to nationalise these corporations, but you need to ensure they pay significant tax for the privilege of extracting mineral resources. I don't think Gina and Twiggy would mind. <laughs> I'm joking. They're, they're a personal fortune dropping from, was it, 24 billion and 8 billion to, to, to say, 2 billion and 1 billion. It doesn't really make much difference at the end of the day, does it? A billion here, a billion there. I'm sure you and I could, you know, live on a billion dollars a year. So these are three ways of funding these practical steps to create a climate of cultural change which addresses the issue of violence against women and the issue of violence in our community. You listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Toscano. You can go to the YouTube channel, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest. You can join Public Interest Before Corporate Interest. Go to the website, pipsy.net. Have a look at the current policies. Download the application form, become a member. You can go to the Anarchist Institute website, anarchistmedia.org. Don't forget this program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. You can go to Instagram, Radical Australia. Um, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on. Plenty of stuff on platforms. If you're not computer literate or you don't want to be computer literate, well, you can always write to us at Post Office Box 20 Parkville 3052, Post Office Box 20 Parkville 3052, or you can leave messages on 0439 0439395489. You listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. This program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. Well, we're back in the culture wars. You can't defame the dead. Now, I have thought I had seen everything in my life, but I haven't. The Australian newspaper has sunk to new lows. Now, just in case you don't know what the Australian newspaper is, it's the only national newspaper in this country. It continues to set the political, social and cultural agenda in this country. It's never made a profit in its 60-year history or 58-year history or whatever it is. It is bankrolled by Mr Murdoch because it's his gateway to Parliament House. He is the kingmaker. Him and his uh, crew are the kingmakers as far as Australian politics are concerned. They can destroy a political party's fortunes. I mean, they don't need facts. You know, who needs facts? The more mud you throw, the better. But they've actually sunk to the bottom of the pile. Now, we all know that Mr Porter, the current Attorney-General, is under a lot of strain, a lot of stress, because of the allegations that have been made against him. 
by an individual who took their own life. Now, the Australian had an article where they had access to the psychiatric records of the woman who made the allegations, who obviously had a number of mental health issues, whether these mental health issues were related to the alleged rape when she was 16 or whether they were because of some you know, genetic predisposition, nobody will ever know. But we saw a discussion of her mental, mental health records trying to get us to think that the allegations were not based on any factual occurrence. Think about it. You can't defame the dead. You can discredit the dead. You can use their mental health records to try to discredit what they are saying. I mean, if this is the standard of Australian journalism that we expect, well, I don't think it can get any lower, to be honest. Now, obviously, people with mental health issues are sexually assaulted. And in many regards, the sexual assaults which occur against people with mental health issues are greater than the amount of sexual harassment and assaults that occurs in the community at large. Because somebody has a mental health issue does not necessarily mean that everything they are saying is some type of hallucination. And this particular attack by the Murdoch-owned media against somebody who is dead, because you can't defame the dead, I think highlights the pressure the current Morrison-led government is under regarding these allegations as far as the Attorney-General is concerned and regarding the allegations against the government is concerned in the in the issue of Miss Higgins, Miss Higgins, and the allegations she has made about what happened to her in a minister's office in Parliament House of all places. Think about it. Think about it. And talking about defamation, currently Mr. Porter is involved in a defamation case against the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. Now, defamation cases are quite interesting because it's very easy to be found guilty of defamation under Australian law currently, and there are, there are moves afoot to change those laws. It's very easy. But a defamation case is a classic mechanism by which to restrict the amount of debate which occurs in the community. And uh, I think it's an interesting um, development and it'll be interesting to see how far it goes. And once the 
Hullabaloo blows over and Hullabaloo always blows over. Maybe Mr Porter will desist because it does have a great deal of... uh, You've got to be a little bit cautious when you do a defamation case because sometimes the court finds you not defamed and that puts you in a very difficult situation. All right, let's move on. Obviously there are many more topics and issues that we need to cover during the anarchist world this week, but uh, I thought it was important that we give this issue the um, time it deserves. Role models, 21st century role models. Now, one of the most telling statements I heard during the... um, rally, the March for Justice outside the Canberra, uh, the Federal Parliament in Canberra was what type of role models do children have when Parliament is such under scrutiny? Who are the 21st century role models that our children and grandchildren look up to? Is it US gangster rappers? Is it, is it uh, local celebrities or international celebrities? People are famous for being famous. Is it the, the House of Windsor and their hanger honours? Is it the current Australian of the Year? And it's quite obvious there are very few role models that children can mould themselves on or use as models for their lives in 21st century Australia. Very few. Obviously there are people who've done the right thing. Normally they're considered to be losers because in 21st century Australia ethical, moral people who pay their taxes are losers while unethical, immoral people who uh, don't pay any taxes are the winners, because we do live in a capitalist society and the more money you've got in your pocket, the greater your possibilities. So who are our 21st century role models? Is it religious figures? Considering the scandals uh, around religious figures over the last few years, it's difficult to find a religious figure you can actually model yourself on. Is it some celebrity, some vacuous celebrity who's famous for being famous? Is it a member of federal parliament? Especially a member of one of the major political parties? Is it some industry leader who's become a great philanthropist because they haven't paid their fair share of tax? Is it somebody out there who's you know made a name for themselves in the media? Because of their, um, you know, their um, their personality, or the fact that they try to divide Australians continuously and use that clash as a mechanism by which to big note themselves, I really can't see any twenty first century people I'd like to model myself on, especially in this country, which is a tragedy. But if you can, you know, somebody, let me know. Let's move on to the universities, hybrid universities, hybrid. 
You know, you've got hybrid cars, petrol and electric. Well, you know, we now have hybrid universities. Universities in this country were traditionally public institutions which not only provided education but provided research and provided role models. Well, there may be some scientists you can look at who provide role models in this country who've done something reasonable. But today, we've got a problem. The public-private partnership which universities uh, run on has gone out of kilter and most universities are now hostages of the private sector. We've seen that with the decrease of overseas students because of the COVID-19 crisis. But more importantly, we're seeing it in terms of research. And the fact that most research was currently conducted in universities is not publicly funded, and that means that the results are not the property of the people of this country. But most research is now privately funded, and research results belong to the piper. They don't belong to the community. So we are seeing private organisations manipulating research results in order to augment their profits and using by using the resources which have been built up by public institutions over generations. And with the if the passage of legislation which makes it almost impossible to enrol for a degree in the humanities because of the cost involved for a philosophy degree, you can understand that universities have now been, like almost every other institution in this country, have now become part of of the private marketplace. And if you're involved in health research, especially in the university, the first thing you're asked is, what corporation can we piggy tail with in order to maximise return privately for us. Extraordinary situation. Important public institutions, not just public utilities like banks, planes, ports, airports, electricity, gas, water, and I could go on and on. But now the very institutions which provide the theoretical an intellectual content to create culture have now become privately owned. This is all part of that privatisation mania which has gripped the West over the last four decades. Let's move on. West Papua. Now, I was at the West Papua Rent Collective do on uh, Sunday, and it's a privilege. I'm a member of the West Papua Rent Collective. I'm actually the convener. It's a privilege It's a privilege to be part of that collective because what we do is we pay the rent for West Papua activists and they conduct the struggle in the way they see fit. And if you've got a bit of spare cash, and I'm talking about a dollar a day, and you'd like to be a member of the West Papua Rent Collective or your contribution has run out and you've forgotten to re-put in your dollar, you can do a number of things. You can uh, ring me on 0439 395 489 and uh, I'll give you the details of how to become a member. 
or you can actually write to us at Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052, or you can email me at info at anarchistage at yahoo.com, anarchistage at yahoo.com. But see, what the Wren Collective does, it allows the West Papuan activists to conduct their struggle in the way they see fit. And obviously, at every Wren Collective me- meetings, there are harrowing stories of what's happening to activists in West Papua. The latest story is a 24-year-old West Papuan activist, a student at Jakarta University, 14 police break into the dormitory, rough him up, beat him up, take him to jail. He's been charged with treason, which is a life sentence, possibly execution. For what? For what? For writing an article which was published in Australia about West Papua. Think about it. West Papua is less than 70 kilometres from the Australian shores. Over a half a million people have died in that struggle in the last 60 years. And if you think there are billions of people in West Papua, there's only about a million West Papuans left in West Papua. And with the spreading COVID-19 epidemic in Papua New Guinea, it's quite likely the number of COVID-19 cases in West Papua will increase dramatically and we'll have deaths, possibly thousands if not tens of thousands of deaths in that country as the West Papuans always at the end of the line when it comes to health care as far as the Indonesian government is concerned. So I encourage you to join the West Papuan Rent Collective. I encourage you because it is a privilege to be able to assist people not in terms of charity but in terms of promoting a struggle for independence, which means the fishing rights, the timber, the minerals, which West Papua is enriched with, can be used for the benefit of the West Papuan people, not their Indonesian military masters. So I encourage you to join. We're about 12 members short. People die. People move on. People lose interest. People's economic fortunes change. We need 12 members the next ten, uh, in the next two or three months before the next uh, Rent Collective uh, Open Day. So if you've got that little bit of money spare, jingle in your pockets, a dollar a day, $365 this year, $366 during a leap year, give me a call, write to me, email me, whatever. And as I said before, it's a privilege. And if you've got a a relative and you don't know what to buy them for their birthday, well, a membership of the West Papua Rent Collective is all they need to get that warm feeling in their hearts. Because as I said before, this is not about charity. This is about supporting an independence movement for one of the most marginalised oppressed, exploited peoples on the face of the planet. You're listening to the Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. Myanmar, the killing continues. Let's not forget the Myanmar military was set up by the Japanese imperial forces during World War II. They have a history, a long history of killing their own people. They're involved in continuous 
fighting with ethnic minorities on the uh, borders of Myanmar, uh, with the support of the Chinese government, they have now taken over in Myanmar because they're concerned, not for the future of their citizens, but they're concerned that they're, the power they're able to exercise over this country is enormous uh, logging, fishing and mineral resources, the same as West Papua, are under threat and they're more than willing to turn their guns on their own people. In 1988, they killed 30,000 during an uprising. In, I think in the 1990s, they killed 6,000 Buddhist monks who were involved in an uprising and they continue to kill their own people every day. Or not much I can do, not much you can do. As long as they, the Chinese uh, government supports the uh, military dictatorship, it's going to be very difficult for the people of Myanmar, but all I can say is they've shown a lot of courage, courage which is lacking in this country as far as social reform is concerned. They've shown an exceptional amount of courage to go out to the streets to know you may not come back that night or you may be seriously injured by a bullet highlights how desperate the situation is. You're listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. You can leave messages on 0439 You can go to my personal Facebook page, Joseph Toscano. That's right, or Toscano for the public. You can go to YouTube channel, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest, Instagram, Pipsy underscore AU, Twitter, which we haven't used for ages, but I may have to reactivate it, and the list goes on and on. You've been listening to The Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. And yes, you can join Public Interest Before Corporate Interest very, very simply. You can download the application form from pipsy.net and send it back virtually, or you can give me a ring and I can send you out a application form and you can post it. That's right. So we use all different mechanisms. And as we're on the go... Our membership is about 81% of what we need to register the federal political party. So keep joining public interest before corporates. If you want cultural change, if you want collective change, if you want to shake up the current institutions, there's nothing more dangerous for them than you joining like-minded people in public interest before corporate interest. Thank you for listening to The Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station. This program has been streaming live on 3cr.org.au. It comes to you from the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. It is broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. Thank you. Listen in to the Anarchist World this week, next week. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death construction an analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World This Week, Australia's Sacred Cow Slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Oh, Lord, yeah.
So it's up to us, the people. We need a treaty in this country. We need the end to the war in this country. And the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one you see in Victoria, not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory, because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace. A treaty means equality. And a treaty means justice. Thank you. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.